everybody. Welcome back to another episode of Passing Judgment, a podcast about politics and the law and a lot of things in between. I'm your host, Loyola Law School Professor Jessica Levinson, and today we are joined by Matt Stevens. He is a political reporter for The New York Times. He's based in New York. Previously, he covered breaking news and wrote general assignment stories on the Express desk. Before coming to The New York Times, he was a reporter for The Los Angeles Times. That's when I met him where he wrote about the drought, water, and the city's west side. Matt, welcome. Thank you for passing judgment with us. Oh, that's a really good catchphrase. Um, (laughs) Thank you for having me, Jessica. So I'm going to start with a question that I've actually asked a couple of guests who are journalists like yourself, which is very broad. And the umbrella is, what is it like to be a member of the media during the Trump administration. And specifically, you work for a place, the New York Times, that the President of the United States has specifically targeted over and over again, calling it the failing New York Times. And I would love for you to share with our listeners, you know, just some insight of, does that affect your daily life at all? How does it in any way affect what you do, how you're perceived, how you go about your job as a member of the media? It's really busy, right? Um, I think, you know, it's not a secret that I think we have more White House reporters than we've ever had. And I'm on our politics team, which is slightly different, but sort of same idea. And I just think that when you have a president who is making news for one reason or another every day, that's just a higher volume of news to cover, right? And that's just more work for us to do. Recently, so we're here in September, and it just seems like, you know, I started my year with with Iowa and New Hampshire and then went from there and actually moved to Metro for a couple months to deal with the virus coverage here in New York when it was really, really, really terrible. Uh, And then we had the Veep Week, the RNC, the DNC, and it seems like, and we've had these reckonings over racial justice that have come not once, but twice. And it's just been just an extremely, extremely busy year. I I think most folks will tell you that this is the busiest news year that folks have seen uh, in their lifetime, folks who have been doing this way, way longer than me. And so the president is is certainly a part of that. Um, I don't think he's the entire story. There are fires where you are in California right now, and there was a storm, uh, you know, in I just the number of things that are happening are just sort of mind numbing. And uh, and so I think it's just been a lot for everybody. Uh, and I don't I don't know how we're how much longer we can go like this, frankly. It, that's what I was just going to ask you. I mean, does it feel that it's just been absolutely relentless? I mean, so I as a professor get semester breaks. And now, of course, I'm still working, but I do get moments of reprieve. And it seems like you've just gone from one story to the next. And do you do anything just on a personal level to try and reset? It has just been a lot. And I think, and I don't mean that in in a way at all to complain. I think this is one of the most fascinating times to to be a part of the news. But uh, as we've you know, had some of these reckonings and we've begun to discuss um, even how to do our jobs. I think when you have a president, and I don't think I'm saying anything out of turn here, who who does 
lie or give mistruths or, or sort of stretch the facts for his benefit, it makes the job more difficult, right? And frankly, one of the things we've all had to learn is that, you know, we can't just be stenographers. Uh, I think there was a time probably early in my career where it was like, okay, this is what the person said. Um, and, and you type it down and sort of put it all in order and out you go. And now, um, and now we just have to be really, really thoughtful about everything we're putting into the world and sort of what perspective that's coming from. Right. I, I don't know if that makes sense, but it makes it much more difficult. That makes total sense. And it's actually something I wanted to ask you about because I was looking through your recent articles last night in preparation for talking to you. And one article you wrote, the headline was Texas Candidates Ads Featuring a Fake Border Patrol Agent Raise Eyebrows. Another headline, Twitter flags a video shared by Steve Scalise that manipulated Addie Barkin's interview with Biden. And it does seem to me that increasingly you're having to fact check, as you said, not be a stenographer. And I wanted to ask you generally about what you feel is your responsibility as a member of the media. You know, how much do you feel that you owe it to your readers to say, you know, caveat, this is not true? Or do you feel it's the job of a journalist to kind of put it out there and put enough information out there that, you know, for lack of a better term, it's hard. I mean, just phrasing the question is hard because there really aren't two sides when it comes to the truth and falsehoods. But this is a long way of asking you, you know, how much of your job now, how much of your responsibility is to be a fact checker? Even these seemingly straightforward things require, are usually pretty complex and pretty nuanced. And when we're trying to write news quickly, this is really hard. And we're having to have discussions about it seems like literally everything, right? Yeah. To make sure that when we're presenting this, we're presenting the most accurate picture of what actually occurred. How do you pick in a world in which obviously headlines are so important because we're not necessarily thumbing through the entire paper, we're on Twitter or we're on a website and we're deciding whether or not to read an article based on a headline, who actually decides what that's going to say? Right. I have colleagues who... Uh, will not write a headline on their story uh, in part so that they can tell. uh, I I don't think this is going to get me in trouble, but I have colleagues who will not write a headline on their own story so that they can tell the sources, hey, I had nothing to do with it. Um, But uh, more often, I think the big picture is that, and and that's how it used to be, right? We used to have these sort of uh, copy desks where, they would put the headlines on the stories. And it used to be that print was like the main uh, headline that we were concerned about. Right. And so uh, uh, there were different people separate from the reporter putting the headlines on stories. Now I will say we spend an extreme amount of time on headlines. I think correctly uh, because we know how important it is to get that level of nuance correct in that headline. And that, as you say, Jessica, like that is, maybe the only thing that people are going to see, that they are not going to read any words of the story. And I will say, you know, we're now in a place where headline workshopping uh, before, you know, sort of before and potentially after publication is a huge, huge thing. You'll have a whole Slack group just sort of like who have all read this story sort of brainstorming uh, 
a headline and you're talking about small tweaks here and there, but especially when it comes to politics, we're doing that all the time because we do want to be really cognizant and careful about it. How do you help educate the public about trusting members of the media? This is something that I struggle with with my students where I will come to class and I'll say, you know, here's an article from, and it's a site or it's an outlet where I know I can trust the person. I know that if you write an article, I can trust you. And they say, oh, that's the, and then kind of fill in the blank. And so they just undercut the reporting because either it's mainstream media or it's, you know, the New York Times or it's the Washington Post or whatever it is. And I'm hoping that you can try and help sort out for me and the listeners, how do we explain basically basic media literacy? How do we explain, no, you can credibly rely on this. This is something that has integrity. The first answer is sort of like, I'll tell you what I tell my friends who are not in all cases super interested in the media or thinking that we are credible. And that is that we can get sued. We do get lawsuits filed against us occasionally. If a single sentence, a single, there's anything in a story that is factually untrue, that is not immediately corrected as soon as we know it, um, this can lead to litigation. And it does sometimes lead to litigation. Uh, One of your areas of expertise, right? Uh, Especially if we're talking about a public figure who who happens to be uh, litigious, right? And so one thing I, I remind people of that and just say that it is not at all in my interest uh, to write something that is not uh, 100% unequivocally true. Um, and I think that that is why, uh, just to get into the weeds a little bit, you know, when we, when we write something, we still often use the attribution, you know, uh, the authorities said, or Mr. Trump said, or, uh, whoever, you know, uh, experts said, because we did talk to someone and this is what they said. And that's unequivocally true. Even if you disagree with the, the substance of the thing that was said, I'm not sure if that makes sense, <laughs> but that's sort of like a protection against litigation. And so I remind people that if things were untrue, if we were publishing things that were false, we would be getting sued all the time and we would be losing and we would be bankrupt. And that's not just we, the New York times, that's media in general. Right. Um, so that's piece one. And I'm not sure if that is totally satisfactory. Uh, piece two is just that I think the best way, I don't know, my, my little personal quest, uh, in doing this work is just the more human beings I interact with as a journalist, the more I hope, you know, it puts a face on it. Right. Um, and I can tell you from going out on the trail and talking to voters, just trying to have interactions with voters, many of whom are skeptical of the news media, uh, and just going through this exercise of, okay, I'm an empathetic listener. I'm a real person. I'm not just this enigmatic New York times, right? I've asked insightful questions. Um, I've listened to you. And then in many cases, I, you know, if what you said makes a story, I've represented uh, what you said fairly. I think we as journalists can build back, build credibility with folks that way. And I think that's sort of like the daily, <laughs> the daily fight up that mountain, if that makes any sense. 
That makes total sense. I wanted to pick up on two things that you brought up. One is you talked about basically citing people and saying, you know, this person said this. And this has been in the news a lot. How do you treat anonymous sources? And can you describe a little bit for the listeners, you know, should we look at an article that has anonymous sources with more skepticism? Does it matter how many anonymous sources? Does the context matter? You know, what type of corroboration should we look for? How do you as a journalist treat those situations? Right. Well, and I know uh, this has been in the Atlantic. I've read the story. The situation I think you're talking about is this recent Atlantic uh, story with four anonymous sources uh, quoting President Trump as sort of disparaging the military. I would say this. I mean, I would again start with this premise that journalists from credible institutions are not making any of this up. Uh, if they did, they would be throwing uh, their institutions into huge. Uh, legal jeopardy. And these sources, uh, I would just insist, are, are real people. If they say there were four sources said, they talk to four sources. And the way that we need to, as journalists, um, sort of help the reader gain confidence in this is to be as specific as possible with these sources in describing who they are, if we're not going to name them, Right four high-ranking military officials, um, you know, for whatever, to be a little bit more clear. But I would just insist that no journalist is spinning out information from people who do not exist. That is not something that we do, right? To the extent that there is skepticism around that, I would say folks could look and see, okay, what is the track record with the information that is initially sourced anonymously bearing itself out? I would say, you know, a lot of times we will use anonymous sources because we need to protect the identities of folks who could lose their jobs or suffer some other ramifications. But then three weeks later, out comes a criminal indictment that says exactly what what our story said, right? And I think folks should be paying attention to that. I think in this most recent case of this Atlantic story and Trump disparaging the armed forces, it was interesting to me to read how specific the vignettes and anecdotes about Mr. Trump's language were. Yeah. Yeah. And to me, that's a check of like, okay, this is, this is very, uh, this suggests to me that this is, yeah, this is, this is, I would never doubt that, that these sources were real and that this news was accurate. But if I was looking to try to inspect this, I would look to see, okay, you know, uh, does this seem like it's made up out of thin air? No, this seems pretty particular. Right. Um, and so I certainly recognize that, that this is a challenge. And I think we as journalists need to insist more on sort of on the record sourcing, right? Because there is this dangerous skepticism. Um, but I would also say that the president and, and some other folks have, have leveraged this idea of fake news in a way that's really unhelpful um, and, and sort of tried to blow a hole uh, in anonymous sourcing that make it seem as though we're making this, fo- this stuff up out of thin air and, and, and nobody is. Yeah. And it seems like that's kind of the response to, oh, fake news, which is everything you just talked about that one, you're doing this to inform people Two, obviously you don't want to be sued. And, you know, three, that you're using sources that you're using um, most of the time, preferably on the record sources. And, you know, when it's not possible, anonymous sources, but looking for details that allow the public to evaluate and to corroborate. 
Matt, you've given us great insight into your work and some really detailed questions and answers that I've been curious about, just how you function as a member of the media in 2020 with this relentless drinking water from a fire hydrant type of news cycle, how you go about dealing with falsehoods, what your responsibility is to fact check, um, you know, the things that you might like to be covering. And now I want the listeners to be able to learn a little bit more about you. So as loyal listeners of the podcast know, I end every episode by asking my guests the same three questions. Which famous person, dead or alive, would you want to invite to a dinner party and why? Well, this is a surface level answer that may be unsatisfactory, but I just, I'm a huge Taylor Swift fan, as you may or may not recall. From I do know that. Do you know this? Okay. Uh, so I just feel, you know, I, uh, thanks to a blessing of journalism, got to spend like five minutes with her, maybe, I don't know, five years ago. Uh, that's a long story for another podcast. Uh, and I just felt, you know, that we had a real connection and that uh, <laughs> I, I just I would like to spend more than five minutes with it. So that is uh, especially, I don't know if you listen to this new album, just fantastic. Question two, you're going to be stranded on a desert island and you can bring one meal. What is it? Well, I grew up in San Diego uh, and um, one of my perennial uh, disappointments here in New York just that the Mexican food is just awful, just really terrible, and totally unsatisfactory. And and so as a San Diegan, uh, it's a little bit different than LA, I guess. But we were just there were a million taco shops, and like before we would head to the beach after school, we would like stop by one of them and get a California burrito. Last question. You get one superpower for an hour. What is it and why? In this moment, Professor, I just really would like some more energy. And yes, this is not I like associated with like any any like superhero that I'm aware of, but if there was a way to like sleep in that hour long enough to like get, you know, another hundred hours of productivity. Again, there are no wrong answers. You can create new superpowers. Knowing how much you're doing, how tired you must be, Matt Stevens, political reporter for the New York Times. I'm so glad that you could join us. You can find Matt on Twitter at ByMattStevens. You can find me on Twitter at Levinson Jessica. You can find the podcast on Twitter at PassJudgmentPod and on Instagram at PassingJudgmentPod. Thank you to our listeners. We're so grateful for all of you who are tuning in and we will see you next time.